Tonight we'll be in Psalm 46. Psalm 46. It's a great psalm. I've titled this psalm, Our Very Present Help. And you'll see why in just a moment as we read Psalm 46. Before we read, I want to just give you a couple of thoughts about the psalms, just to kind of orient you as to what these, the psalms are all about. You know, the psalms are basically hymns or poems uh, that were written to be used in worship among God's people, the Israelites, and they were collected. And they're wonderful because they were, they were written to be sung, and, and just like songs we sing today and know today, they're full of emotion, uh, some very real Emotions are pictured here in the Psalms, and, and they're just powerful to read them. And so, Kendall easily gives us some insight into what the, the Psalms are all about. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so, the Psalms remind us, week after week after week, that sometimes things are good, sometimes things, things are bad, Right? And whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley, God is still worthy of your worship, right? And whether you're on the mountaintop or the valley, God is still worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your confidence. He can, whatever is going on in your life, He can handle it. And He wants you to come to Him with whatever's going on in your life. And so that's an, an idea of, of a way to think through the Psalms. I love this next statement from John Piper. He writes, The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And the Psalms remind us of that because as you read through the Psalms, you see just about any emotion you can name. You'll find it somewhere in the pages of the 150 chapters that we call the book of Psalms. And so uh, they are rich. That's why, that's why so many people connect with the Psalms. Uh, if you ask people what their favorite book of the Bible is, a uh, large number of people that you ask would probably say the Psalms uh, because um, they find those emotional connections with these words. So let's read Psalm 46. I'm going to pray for us after we read, and then we will jump right in and talk about God being our present help. If you're not familiar with Psalm 46, you might be familiar with some of the, the wording, some of the phraseology that you find in this chapter so look there with me, Psalm 46. To the choir master of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were the, basically the music ministers for the nation of Israel. As the temple was constructed, they had folks that led the music. And the sons of Korah were the ones who led the music. I say it like this. The sons of Korah were like, our, like Travis. All right? Travis is our son of Korah. All right? And it says, according to the Alamoth, which is uh, probably a, a musical term, we don't know for sure, and then it says very clearly, a song. So this was written to be sung. And it says there in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now I could just close the Bible and say amen and we could all go home because that's some good truth. Right? That's some good truth. That preaches. Verse 2, therefore we will not what? Fear. Though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, 
the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now look in verse 10. This is a verse you've probably heard in some way, shape, or form. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's pray together this evening. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we can call you Father. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you have spoken. We have your word, truth with no mixture of error. And Lord, your word is a, is a foundation for our life. And we're just grateful for that, that, Lord, that we can build our lives upon the rock. And Lord, as we study your word, as we learn your word, I pray that you would just do a work in our lives. Lord, that our hearts and our minds would resonate with what we study. And Lord, that if there anything anything needs to happen in our lives to, to line up with what we learn in your word, I pray that you would do that. For the glory and the fame of your great name. So God, just have your way in our midst. May we understand in a better way what it means that you are a very present help in trouble. And we'll thank you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. A very present help, or our very present help. Psalm 46. Now, we need to just begin by thinking through the context of the psalm. I'll get to it in a little bit as to what we think is happening uh, as a basis for this psalm being written, or what the, the, the situation was that caused this psalm to be written. But it's, it's, it's about living in dangerous times. And it's easy, when you live in dangerous times, or you live in troubling times, it's e- easy to look around and get anxious at what you see, and get anxious at how it might affect you. Very easy to live in that anxiety. This psalm, Psalm 46 equips us, equips you, equips me, to live in the midst of troubling times. And not only to live, but to live with confidence, to to live without fear in our lives. It's interesting to note that this was Martin Luther's favorite psalm, and it was the basis for the hymn he wrote titled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And if you haven't uh, sung Mighty Fortress is Our God lately or, or heard it lately, just grab a hymn book and, or look it up on Google. You can Google hymn lyrics and read the lyrics to Mighty Fortress is Our God. And you'll see some connections with this psalm and how this psalm strengthened Martin Luther in the midst of great difficulty. So, there are a couple things that we see in this psalm. Uh, I've only got two points tonight, so it won't take long at all. Okay, we'll be, we'll be through very, very quickly. Um, it's a little bit. I stretched the truth a little bit. Sorry. Um, there are some sub points. So, uh, but two major truths that I want you to see in this psalm. First of all, in this psalm we see the reality of troubling times. The reality of troubling times. Look what it says there in verse one. It says, "God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble." Now that word "trouble," the original Hebrew word translated "trouble." is uh, the word for tight places. 
That's, that's literally what the word means. So you can read it like this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in tight places. You ever been in a tight place before? Uh, between a rock and a hard place, if you will? We all have. And that's what he's talking about, being in a tight place, a, a, a place of trouble, a place of danger. Then he goes on to say in verse 2, Therefore we will not fear, though or even though the earth gives way. Wow. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. So verses 2 and 3 seem to speak of a natural disaster beyond the control of men. The, the, the mountains being, being put into the sea. Can you imagine what that would look like? It, it's almost like the psalmist here is saying, I will not fear even if my world is turned upside down. Wouldn't that be the case if a mountain goes into the ocean? The world's being turned literally upside down. And the psalmist is saying here, even though my world is turned upside down, I will not fear. But he's speaking of, of a of metaphor here. He could be speaking of a natural disaster. He could just be using this as a metaphor for troubling times. And then look what it says down in verse 6. Verse 6, if you haven't got the, the gist here. Verse 6, he writes, The nations rage. The nations rage. He's speaking here of the violence of humanity. Look in verse 9. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. So he's speaking of the reality of wars, the, the reality that the nations are raging. And so the psalm is saying, everywhere I look, I see danger, I see trouble, I see wars, I see battles, I see things that are weighing me down. I see violence, the, the violence of humanity all around me. And so he's again speaking of the reality of troubling times. So let's think about that. Tight places, between a rock and a hard place, right? The world being turned upside down. Violence everywhere that you look. This psalm was written thousands of years ago, but it sounds like it could have been written in 2017, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Sound like, and this sounds like what we're living in right now. And everywhere we look, we see trouble. We see danger. We see war. We see terrorism. We worry about uh, Zika virus and and, and we're concerned about our family, and we're concerned about our job, and, and we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, and sometimes it's, it's so hard that it seems like our world is turned upside down. So even though this is an ancient psalm, it is so applicable for our lives today. Now here's the big question, and where we get to some, some theological thinking. Why is our world such a mess? Why? Let me say it like this. Why is life so, to quote Bobby Bowden, dadgum hard? Why is it so hard? Why is there so much trouble out there? So much stress and anxiety? And why? Here's the answer. This is in your notes. Troubling times are a constant reality in a sin-cursed world. Troubling times are a constant reality in a sin-cursed world. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, read about that over in Genesis chapter 3, Sin entered the world, God cursed the world, and we've been living in that sin-cursed world ever since. That's why there are things like tsunamis, and hurricanes, and tornadoes, and diabetes, and cancer. We live in a fallen world, and, and that fallenness is seen all around us, which, by the way, is what makes heaven heaven, right? I mean, can you imagine if we didn't have heaven to look forward to? Can you imagine if this world was all that there was or is, how depressing that would be? 
But, but as Christians, we have the hope of heaven in our future. We know that one day we'll be in a place where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. But in the meantime, this, this period of time God's given us to walk on this earth, it's going to be tough. Why? We live in a sin-cursed world. Natural disasters, sickness, and then there are evil folks that, that mistreat us, right? And then we got our own evil to deal with. Can I get an amen? Got our own issues. And so it's just a mess. It's hard. I mean, when you're living, it's, it's going to be tough. And it's almost like this, this hymn was written as the psalmist was thinking about how hard life is. The reality of troubling times. Well, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time convincing you that our world's a tough place to live in, do I? We got that. You, everybody agree with me on that one? Anybody disagree? There's, it's not a utopia, is it? It's tough out there. So, let's get to the next thing. We see here the reality of troubling times. Secondly, I want you to see the reality that God is God. The reality that God is God. How do you cope with trouble? How do you cope with pain? How do you cope with suffering? You, you need to grasp hold of this reality that God is God. And he makes some comments about God that uh, we need to take hold of. If we're going to cling to who God is in the midst of trouble, we need to remember these certain things about His attributes. First of all, God is a God of security. God is a God of security. Look at the, the information or the titles that God has given here in this psalm. It starts in verse 1 where it says, God is our refuge, a place to, to run and hide and be safe from danger. Look in verse 7. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Our fortress. And by the way, I love when I see the designation, the God of Jacob. We see that God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. But there's something about when I see the God of Jacob. It just gives me a lot of, a lot of hope and a lot of joy. Because Jacob was a mess. If you haven't read about Jacob in a while, go read Genesis. He was a trickster. He was a swindler. He was a manipulator. He, he was far from God. And yet one night, he met God. In the famous wrestling match, that story over in Genesis, I think it's 32, somewhere right around in there. And he's converted. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. But anytime I see God is the God of Jacob, it makes me think about grace, right? And, and, and if God can change Jacob and save Jacob, he can do it for anybody. Amen? I'm glad he's the God of Wade. Because I've done some dumb things in my life and some things I'm not too proud of in my life, but he's my God because of grace. He's offered to save me and change me and, and enter into relationship with me. And so I'm grateful every time I say God of Jacob. I think grace, 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 grace. But notice there, it says that he's our fortress. You know what a fortress is? A fortress protects you from uh, an advancing army. Verse 11. Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we see these terms. Refuge, fortress. It means that God is our protector. He is our security. It kind of reminds me of the childhood game Tag. You know, you tag and you're it. And then they run around and tag somebody else, you're it. And you're in danger of being it unless you make it back Where? Home base, right? You designate a place, and if you can make it back, if you can make it back to home base, you're safe. No one can tag you. You can't be it. 
you are safe in that moment. And it's almost like the psalmist here is saying, yes, I am surrounded by trouble, I'm surrounded by trials, I'm surrounded by danger, but, but God is my home base. He is the one that keeps me safe. And here's something, I say this all the time, but it's, I think it's so important for us to remember that if you are a child of God through Jesus Christ, nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. He's your refuge. He's your fortress, right? Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. And, as I always say, if God allows it, he has a purpose in it. If he allows harm or danger or sadness or sickness to touch your life, he's going to use it ultimately for your good, and he's going to use it, James 1 says, to build our character. Therefore, James says, we can rejoice in trials. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? When the wheels come off, rejoice. (laughs) Why? God's at work. God's doing something. But nothing can touch your life, nothing can touch my life as children of God unless God allows it. He is our security. He is our protector. And so in the midst of a troubling world, rejoice that you have a relationship with God who's in control of it all. Right? Listen, he's calling the shots. And you have a personal relationship with him. That's good news, right? He's a God of security. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, our refuge, our fortress. Secondly, he's a God of presence. I dealt with this a lot on Sunday in my sermon on Joshua. Recurring theme throughout the Bible. But look what it says in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. A very present help in times of trouble. So, if you're a child of God, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then God has promised that He's always present in your life. Now that phrase present could be translated uh, helpful. So you could translate it, God is our refuge and strength, abundantly available for help in times of trouble. That's the way you could translate it from the Hebrew. So here's the deal. If, if you're a child of God, he's with you. And if he's with you, he will help you. That makes sense? Now, if you could not depend upon God's presence, then you would have no assurance of his help. But because God is present, he knows what you're going through. He can bring his power to bear on that situation. He can help. And, and he cares because he's right there with you, abundantly available for help. Verses 4 through 5 picture God being present with his chosen people. Look what it says in verse, verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. What rivers are talking about? Some people believe that the psalmist here is talking about paradise, the new heavens and the new earth, and the river of God that would flow. Uh, that flows in heaven. Um, Some people believe this is a historical reference to a river that Hezekiah had caused to flow from the pool of Siloam that gave Jerusalem a supply of water when they were surrounded and besieged by enemies. And, and, And so he's saying, hey, even when we're surrounded by enemies, there's a stream of water in the river or in the city that we can be refreshed from. And it says there, verse 5, and here's the point, God is in the midst of her, the midst of his city. So when his city is under attack, we'll talk about that in a moment, 
God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help when, when morning dawns. And so he's speaking there of his presence among his people. Then he says it very clearly, verses 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is what? With us. The Lord of hosts is with us. Verse 7 and verse 11. And so these verses picture God's refreshment and God's presence in our life. A God of presence. I remember, by the way, I don't um, recommend this, but I remember when I was a child, we had a community haunted house. And uh, I went through with some friends the first time. It was this haunted house at our little community center there in Perry, Florida. And and it, I was I don't remember my exact age, but I was a little guy, and it was just terrifying. I mean, there were you know Dracula was getting up out of the coffin, and and I'm still traumatized by it today. You can tell it's just still uh, it still bothers me. And I, I went through that, and it was terrifying. I mean, haunted house, and and uh, even this day, I don't like being scared. I don't like watching scary movies. I just it's just not my deal. And and I was wa- walking through there, and it was it was just awful. Well, then I went through it again. With my dad. Totally different experience. First of all, dad had a, had a little conversation with me. Hey, listen, Wade. None of these folks are going to hurt you. These are just people that, that are volunteering to be part of the thing. And, and they're just doing it. And, and I'll be right there with you. And so when I, when I went through with my dad, totally different experience. Why? No matter what happened, if Dracula gets up out of his coffin or a mummy comes from behind a wall, whatever happens, my dad's there. Makes a big difference, doesn't it? I'll never forget that. That's a, a good lesson. Because you and I are going to go through things that are scary. Life is hard. We live in a troubling world. But it flat matters that in the midst of the trouble, our father's there, doesn't it? It matters. I remember another story um, when I took one of my boys, they're older now, but when they were, they were little, I think, I think it was Caleb. Uh, took Caleb to uh, the doctor for his shots when he was a little baby. And uh, I usually try to get out of being in the room, uh, you know, and seeing Claire in there, because I just can't stand that. But for some reason, I was in the room. I don't know how that happened. And I was in the room, and uh, he was squirming around. And uh, uh, I think I, they handed him to me. I was, was kind of holding him, and they put little shots, two or three little shots in his leg. And, and he was just... Ah, you know, just just wailing, and it was awful. It was awful. Um, but uh, as I held him tighter, he quit crying very, very quickly. So here's what this little baby knew at the time. Um, ouch, this hurts. I don't understand why I'm hurting. I don't know where the pain's coming from, but I know my dad's holding me. And that's what Psalm 46 is about. Life hurts. Don't always understand why life hurts. Can't explain it to you. I can tell you this. I'm being held. My father never let go of me. He's holding me even through the pain. And so God is a God of security. And God is a God of presence. I just can't tell you how important it is that we remember God's presence in our life. I don't know why we're so prone to forget that God is with us. In our vehicle on the way to work. Hey, God's there. Right? Through family crisis, God is there. Right? Family vacations, God is there. 
He's with us all the time. And we need to remember and cling to and rejoice in His presence. So He's a God of security, and He's a God of presence. But third, He's a God of power. A God of power. Look in um, verse 6. It says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters His voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now this is warfare imagery. And it's speaking of God being victorious and showing his power over armies. Speaking there of God's power. And what we're to be reminded of of, of, is this. There's nothing in this world that can thwart the power of God. I'm going to say it like this. There's, there's nothing or no one more powerful than God. Can I get an amen? Now, again, we know that, right? But we tremble at things we shouldn't tremble at. He is more powerful than anything we deal with. There's nothing in this world that can thwart the power of God. Now, that brings me to discussion as to the context of the psalm. What caused someone to write these words down? Something happened that caused to write these words down. Now, there's some debate, scholarly debate. Uh, some people believe this is the, the attacks of the armies against Jehoshaphat uh, when he was king of Judah. And you can read about that over, I think it's in um, uh, 2 Chronicles 20. You can read about that, that major battle and how God gave Jehoshaphat victory in that. There's another major battle uh, that we read about or um, situation we read about in 2 Kings uh, chapters 18 and 19 when Hezekiah was king and he was attacked by the Assyrians. Okay, so there are two views. One of these two events probably was the basis for writing the psalm, or maybe something else we don't know about. I think, it, I think it's about Hezekiah and the Assyrians. Now let me show you why I believe that. Turn to, sir, turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings. This is an awesome story, by the way. And let me catch you up to speed. The Assyrians were... Look in verse 19, or chapter 19. 2 Kings 19. The Assyrians were brutal. They had a king named Sennacherib, and he took no prisoners, and he would just conquer other nations for the fun of it. And no one could stand up against the rising tide of the Assyrian army. And you read historical accounts about the Assyrians, they were vicious. I mean, they did things to people that would just make your stomach turn. They were vicious, vicious warriors. And they marched right up to Jerusalem. And they sent some messengers and said, Listen, Hezekiah, if you don't surrender, we'll destroy you all. We'll wipe you out. And they're surrounded. And so Hezekiah gets this information. Matter of fact, there's a letter that he gets from the Assyrians. And Hezekiah did something interesting. He didn't convene a meeting with his generals. Hezekiah, and you read about this in Isaiah as well, Hezekiah went to the temple and he laid his letter before God and said, hey Lord, here's the deal. We're surrounded. They're tough. They're talking tough. They're going to destroy us. I've got no options. Here it is, God. I'm put in your hands. What should I do? And so, in 2 Kings chapter 19, we see what God does. Let me get there. I was in 1 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 19. Listen to what the Bible says. 
in verse 16. Then Isaiah, sent by God to give Hezekiah a message, said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up uh, till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord is uh, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? So here's what the Lord says. Hezekiah, you're not going to be decimated by this. You're going to make it through this. But some of your descendants are going to be carried off to Babylon because of the sin of, of my people. And Isaiah, I mean, Hezekiah says, oh, that's good. As long as I get out of trouble, I don't really care about the next generation. Which, by the way, is a terrible attitude, right? And by the way, I won't say that. The application's clear. We need to care about the next generation more than we care about ourselves. Verse 20 says the, the, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool. Um, I'm in chapter 20. Uh, and the conduit brought water into the city are that not written in the book of Chronicles. Now look back in chapter 19. See, I made that fit somehow and it was in the wrong chapter. All right, now. Uh, that was a different situation. <laughs> Look at verse 32 of chapter 19. People say, how was the Bible study tonight? Awesome. It was awesome. I didn't make any mistakes. It was great. Good job. All right, look at verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake, for the sake of my servant David. So he tells Hezekiah, hey, I'm going to take care of Sennacherib. Look what happens next. That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When people arose, and look at this next phrase, early in the morning, behold... These were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. His worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adrimelech and Sherazar, his sons, struck him down with a sword, escaped in the land of Ararat. And so Sennacherib's army was destroyed and Sennacherib was killed. There are some historical writings from the Assyrians, not in the Bible, but they're in Assyrian literature, about Sennacherib's conquest of different cities in this area. And he talks about, I went to this one city and I took them over. I went to this other city and we destroyed them. I went to this next city and we tore down their walls and killed everybody. He's bragging about his military exploits. The records say, when he got to Jerusalem, here's what he said. I had Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Nothing else is said. In other words, I had them. I had them. They were mine. But he doesn't give any details of destruction because he didn't destroy them. His army was decimated by God himself. So God comes to the rescue of of Hezekiah. Now, why do you believe this is the situation that's the background for Psalm 46? Turn back to Psalm 46 with me. Remember that phrase early in the morning? Everybody remember that phrase? They came out early in the morning and saw God had given them victory. Now look back in Psalm 46. Look what it says in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. What, who's the her? Jerusalem. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning what? Dawns. 
I think when the sun came up, they looked out, God had helped them. God had destroyed the Assyrians. So because of that, I believe that's probably, and we don't know for sure, but probably the background for the writing of this psalm. Jerusalem was surrounded by a rival army. They wanted to destroy Jerusalem, but God showed up. That makes the, the verses in verses 8 and 9 make sense. Look what it says. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. Can you imagine how decimated the, the enemy camp looked when they walked out? Because God had dealt with that army. And so I believe that they were surrounded in Jerusalem. God gave them victory. And based upon that, the psalmist writes Psalm 46. God is our refuge and help, a very a strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So all that to say this, God is a God of power. Amen? God is a God of power. Now, that was all introduction. Now to the application, okay? Okay, life is tough. We live in troubling times. We need to remember God is God. Psalm 46 reminds us of that. So what should our response be when we realize we live in troubling times and we realize that God is God? When you realize those two things that Psalm 46 wants us to realize, what should our response to trouble be? How should we respond to tough times? Well, there are two things in this psalm that tell us what our response should be. Number one, courage. Courage. Verse 2. We will not fear, therefore. Though the mountain be cast into the heart of the sea, even if the world turns upside down, even if everything is topsy-turvy, I will not fear. I will not live in fear. You know, fear, think about it like this. Fear is the opposite of faith. Right? Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of trusting God. That's what fear is. It means when you're fearing, and we all deal with this, all right, including yours truly, it means you are more convinced by the power of crisis than you are by the power of God. That's what fear means when we let it get the best of us. I think it's interesting to note that the command to not fear is found 365 times in God's Word, which is one for every day of the year. Amen? God knew that you and I would need to be reminded over and over and over and over and over and over again that we should not live in fear. So if you remember that God is your security and God is present in your life and God is powerful and God is your God even though you live in difficult times, you can see fear banished from your life. We need to live in courage because God is God. Now, if God stops being God, then we can be fearful. But that ain't going to happen, right? That ain't going to happen. God is God. He is sitting, I read it this morning in the Psalms, he, he, in my Bible devotional reading, He is sitting on His holy throne. He's God. He rules over the nations. He's God. So we should be courageous. That should be our response When we realize we live in troubling times, we realize God is God. Here's the second response that you and I should have. Stillness. Stillness. That brings us back to verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. You may have heard me tell this story before, but 
when I was a youth minister during seminary, we sent a group off to youth camp and they had a great time and we came back and they had a youth Sunday, which means the youth led the worship service. So we had youth choir and youth uh, kids singing and I, I did the preaching that morning as the youth pastor. It was just a great service. The kids were excited and fired up after camp, you know, and they were celebrating and singing and clapping. It was just a really good service, really powerful. Uh, God was at work in our kids and and I, I, the service was over, and I walked out of the uh, worship center. I just was on a spiritual high. And uh, I had someone come up to me, who Murray and Janice would know, but I won't say the name. Uh, someone came up to me, and uh, he said, what are we going to do about this clapping in the worship? Or what are you going to do about this clapping? And so I uh, kind of took me back for a minute. I said, well, do you really want to talk about that right now? He said, no, just want to let you know I'm, I'm concerned about the clapping. And there was a verse that was shared to justify his view that we shouldn't clap. You know what the verse was? Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I'm God. So he said, that means we need to be reverent church. We shouldn't clap. Now, if he would have just kept reading, he would have got to Psalm 47, verse 1. Look what it says. Clap your hands, all you people. <laughs> Just keep reading, all right? Don't just, don't just use one verse. Just read all of God's Word. And so um, I'm fine with clapping in church because the Bible tells me I can do it. Amen? Amen. And verse 10 does not mean don't clap in church. Okay? That's bad Bible interpretation. All right? You've got to read the context to know uh, what, this, what this verse means. And we know the context. We've been studying it all night. Troubled times. Your world turned upside down between a rock and a hard place, right? That's the context. So when you find yourselves in troubling times and and you need to remember that God is God, you should be still. That's what he's saying there. You should be still. The word be still means cease striving. As a matter of fact, some of your translations may say that. Cease striving. Quit trying to fix it yourself. Quit trying to figure it all out. Just, Just be still. Let go. That's what the word means. Stillness. Sometimes when life is tumultuous, we forget that God is there and we forget that God is God. And sometimes it takes us stepping away from the immediacy of trouble and getting alone with God, perhaps on our knees with an open Bible, to be still and to remember that God is God. Listen to me. If you are in the middle of the fray and you don't take that time to retreat and be quiet and still uh, before the Lord, it's going to be hard for you to remember that God is God. Be still and know that I am God. That's what that idea means. John Piper writes this. What that text says is that The life-revolutionizing impact of God's supremacy in the world and His inevitable triumph over the nations, because it goes on to say in verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, God is saying, hey, be still. Remember that God is God because I win. That's what verse 10 says. Hey, remember I win. Remember if you know me, you're on the winning team. That's what he's saying there. He goes on to say, The coming of the glorious kingdom of righteousness and peace... The impact of this awesome reality doesn't hit us and hold us and shape us unless we become still and quiet before God. Listen to this. This is a great statement. This is worth you coming tonight. 
God hits home in the stillness. Sometimes we live with so much noise, don't we? TV, radio, chatter, busyness, rush, 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 rush. And we don't take that time to be still and let God remind us of who He is and in these eternal realities. He says God hits home in the stillness. Maybe that's why Jesus said, when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door behind you. Right? In today's vernacular, Jesus might say, hey, go into the inner room, leave your cell phone in the other room, and go in there and pray. Right? If you want your life to be significant, you've got to stop running, stop scurrying about, and turn off the TV and the radio and get alone and be quiet and let the mammoth realities of human lostness and eternal judgment and never-ending joy and God's universal triumph take hold of you and change your life. I like that. If you don't spend time alone with God in stillness and in quiet, you're, you're, you're going to have a hard time grasping hold or keeping hold of these realities that that God is God. We need to be still and know that God is God. Hey, listen to me. Life is hard, but if you know the Lord, He's with you. He's powerful. He's your protector. He has a plan and purpose for your life. And He wins. Amen? One day... He's going to, when the dust settles in human history, he's going to set everything right. And he's going to bring us home to a place where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more tornadoes, no more tsunamis, no more cancer, no more diabetes, no more death, no more hurt, no more relational difficulties. He's going to bring us home to a place of perfect beauty and joy in his presence forever. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amen? And so, we need to be still. And remember that God is God. You ever heard the name Elizabeth Elliot? She lost two husbands. The first was Jim Elliot. You've probably heard of him. He and four other young men in the 50s went to Ecuador to try to take the gospel to a tribe of people that lived in the jungle that had never heard the gospel. And when they made contact with them, those five men were martyred. And uh, there's been books written about it, very well-known story. Jim Elliott was a heroic young man, godly young man. His wife was a godly wife. She eventually went back in to that tribe with some of the other wives, and guess what? Uh, They led many of those people to Christ. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. But she lost Jim Elliott to martyrdom. Her second husband, Addison Leach, was slowly consumed by cancer. In relating what these experiences were like, she referred to this psalm saying that in the first shock of death, everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. She writes, Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. She goes on to say, The most needful thing to do 
when you're experiencing trouble, hardship, trials, is to do what the psalmist does in verse 10. To be still and know that God is God. God is God whether we recognize it or not. She goes on to say, But it comforts us and infuses strength into our faltering spirits to rest on that truth. Let me say that again. It comforts us and infuses strength into our faltering spirits to rest on that truth. And so you and I, we've got to learn to be still in the midst of trouble. Hey, listen, when, when I'm going through trouble, I just want it to be over. Right? And I'll try to do anything I can to make it stop. Manipulate, complain, whine, call somebody, tell them how bad it is. You know, I, I just want it to stop. I want the pain to stop. And if I'm not careful, I won't be still. And I won't remember that in the midst of my trouble, God is God. Be still and know that God is is God. That's what Psalm 46 is all about. So, God is our very present help. Yes, life is hard, but God is God. We need to live in courage. We need to be still so we can remember that reality.